Good evening, everyone who's come this evening to hear me talk about this uh, amazing spiritual treasure, the Russian Orthodox Church. So if we begin, the Russian Orthodox Church didn't just begin in 988 when the Grand Duke Vladimir accepted Christianity which I'll discuss a bit more in, in detail. It obviously goes back to um, Christ and the foundation of Christianity itself. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the first millennium of Christianity, but the apostolic succession um, carried on from the uh, origin original apostles uh, bishops and so forth through to Constantinople where as we all know the Emperor Constantine made Christianity the established religion and then eventually on to Kievan Rus. Now how did uh, Rus and of course by Rus I mean Kiev and those areas to which uh, Rurik the Scandinavian warrior and his people traveled uh, in a partially by conquest, partially by trade, and also because by inviting someone from outside, he could to some degree keep peace and harmony between the local Slavic tribes. Now, if we fast forward a bit towards the end of the millennium, during a visit to Constantinople, Olga, <laughs> the widow of Grand Prince Igor of Kiev, adopted Byzantine Christianity. There had been attempts by uh, Catholics, that is, by the Latin side of, of the church, as opposed to that side of the church which uh, soon was to use um, a special uh, old church Slavonic uh, script uh, in which the uh, Bible was translated uh, from Greek and so forth. And uh, Byzantine Christianity had its own characteristics. I'll go into some of the uh, doctrinal differences a bit later. Now, Olga was the first of uh, these royals to uh, take on Christianity, but that did not mean that the actual uh, Grand Duke was so. So, how did Vladimir, who was uh, Grand Prince of Kiev, uh, adopt Christianity? There's a lot of mythology about it. And one of the myths is that he could see pagan belief and practice was failing. And so he invited people, it was said in this mythology, who were Muslim to come and explain the doctrines of Islam, which they did, but he didn't like the fact that they don't drink. And as you probably know, uh, not many Russians don't drink. <laughs> so uh, he rejected Islam. And also he... he uh, listened to uh, Jewish uh, 
theologians and uh, so forth, and he didn't like the fact that they, also with uh, Muslims, didn't eat pork, because pork was quite a staple in the uh, ancient Rus. And finally, he heard from uh, Christian missionaries from Byzantium, and there he felt everything made sense, and so it is said he adopted uh, Christianity. He did this, by the way, in the uh, little village of Kersonesis in Crimea, which he had recently captured from the Byzantines. So bear that in mind why, aside even today from uh, the military base of Sevastopol, uh, Crimea also has a deeply important spiritual role uh, in the Russian uh, Slavic Orthodox psyche. Now, uh, he conquered that area from the Byzantines, as I said, and it became linked in then with um, Kiev. But the real reasons he did this, and this is not my view alone, it's a view put forth by Metropolitan Hilarion uh, in Moscow, who is the number two in the Russian church. He did that because he liked the imperial grandeur, the imperial military setup, and the nature of autocracy which existed in Constantinople, in Byzantium. And you have to remember, too, this, there was a concept. We began with a musical rendition, and very important in this ancient uh, concept of orthodoxy was that of symphony. Rather like an orchestra plays a symphony with everybody working together, it was the idea that the emperor worked in tandem with the church and it created a sort of spiritual divine harmony in both the body politic and the body spiritual which was quite different to that in the west where the papacy had its powers the secular figures had theirs and there was always uh, of course uh, a lot of uh, contention of who ha who had um, the upper hand. To be frank, very early on, already from the time of the Emperor Justinian in the 6th century, the Emperor had the upper hand. And sometimes, in fact most of the time, when the Emperor had the upper hand, uh, it, there developed what uh, some people uh, call a form of um, Orthodox Babylonian captivity, whereby the Church is literally held to ransom by the secular um, imperial authorities. In any case, as we know, he accepted uh, Orthodox Christianity. And much of what we know about him comes actually from a later compilation, which is called the Chronicle of Nestor from the late 11th century. I also... Uh, feel it's important to know that even within Byzantium and Eastern Christianity, when they were united, there were a lot of uh, issues. There were issues with various heresies. There was also in the uh, late first millennium, 
problems with iconoclasm. Now in Russian Orthodoxy, icons are amongst the most valued um, means of bringing people to uh, a spiritual communion with God, the Virgin and the Saints. But um, in that first millennium, uh, at the second half, there were a lot of problems. Uh, ideas from Islam and Judaism crept in, which maintained that any images were uh, idolatry rather than um, spiritual aids. But this was finally and ultimately uh, condemned by the church as a heresy. Also, sometimes the Catholic Church, that is, the, when I use Catholic, I mean the Latin side of the church, before the, um, they broke in two, the Latin side of the church sometimes was much more conservative, even Byzantine, than the Eastern Church, depending on who happened to be uh, patriarch in uh, Constantinople and who happened to be um, the bishop or the pope in Rome. So it wasn't all clear-cut in, uh, in those times. But in 1054, the split became final to our own day. And that was uh, the great schism in which Eastern Orthodox Christianity split from Western Latin Christianity. Um, I'm sure all of you know uh, in this room the important year 1066 when William the Conqueror came over and took control of England. And of course uh, uh, King Harold was uh, shot and killed by an arrow. But what you may not know is that his daughter went abroad and is said to have um, married the uh, then Grand Prince of Kiev. And funnily enough, their descendants are an, uh, members of another family, some of whom live in England today, some of whom, or one of whom now lives in St. Petersburg, uh, Sebastian uh, Fitzlein Zinoviev. And they are descendants directly from the Dolgorukus. So there is this uh, link because, of course, she was no longer uh, a part of the, the Christian church in England, but the uh, Orthodox church then in Kiev. Well, early saints, um, uh, there are many, and uh, various uh, historical records. Of course, there's very famous since Boris and Gleb, in the 11th century. These were the brothers of the Grand Prince Sviatopolk I, who had them murdered for dynastic reasons relating to his own succession. And they became the first passion sufferers and saints of Holy Rus. Another person was sent Hilarion, who became Metropolitan of Kiev in 1049. He's also interesting because he was the first non-Greek appointed to this post. But what happened? This happened without the agreement of the Patriarch of Constantinople. And you see this constant uh, 
uh, toing and throwing of problems with the Patriarch of Constantinople continues to our very day when uh, the Moscow Patriarchy has broken communion with that of Constantinople because of events in Ukraine, which I'll uh, touch upon a bit later. Not in, during the course of the uh, middle of the 13th century, um, a terrifying event happened in Rus, and that was the Mongol invasion. The Mongol invasion literally conquered everywhere except for Novgorod, within what we today understand as uh, Russia, or in those days, Rus. Novgorod was extremely rich. It looked very much to the west, but it was an immensely important trading hub, and it developed some wonderful uh, church architecture, not least St. Sophia, with its splendid doors. But interestingly, the splendid doors in St. Sophia now, which are to be seen in um, Novgorod, actually came from Magdeburg. So there was a lot more Catholic Orthodox exchange than people um, would realize later on. And again, there was the toing and froing um, between these uh, two versions of Christianity. Uh, I should also say the Metropolitan of Kiev is also noted for his famous sermons and confession of faith, which um, are still highly valued to this very day. Now, to go back to the Mongols, we always hear that Russia was under the Mongol yoke. But the Mongol yoke was not so much a yoke for Moscow, but a yoke for Kiev and other parts of Russia. Why was that? Because Moscow became more and more interesting <coughs> in points of view of trade, uh, and it sat in a wonderful position vis-a-vis -vis the Mongol hordes and the Tartars, because it was able in a sense, to be the special representatives of the Mongols and to, in fact, get a monopoly on, on raising tribute and other wealth, some of which, but not all of which, it gave to uh, the Mongol Tartars in, in Karakoram, in, uh, far to the east. <clears throat> and as a result of that, Moscow became richer and richer to the detriment of Kiev. Let's now go back a bit to the West. And if we think in the West, there was always attempts by the Popes, the Poles, the Swedes, who adopted uh, Catholic Christianity, and other peoples, to bring back orthodoxy into the Catholic fold. And there was that great Council of Florence, 1443 to 49, which, at least for a brief period, seemed to uh, succeed in that goal. But 
even if the patriarch agrees to a reunion, even sometimes if an emperor, a czar, agreed, the bulk of the population and the lower clergy did not and were outraged. So it never became successful, neither this council nor any other, uh, for example, the Council of Brest later in what is now Belarus, but then was a part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, to achieve this unity. So what the Catholic Church then did was uh, in areas which came increasingly under its control, like Poland-Lithuania, it tried to use either by military force or other means uh, uh, an imposition on uh, what is now called orthodox areas to join the Greek rite of the church. That is a rite set up which has the trappings and style of Russian Orthodoxy, but accepts the Pope as um, the primate on faith and morals of the, ch uh, of the church. However, there was another thorny issue in this. It wasn't only that of the Pope as the uh, head of the church, rather than one amongst equals. It was the problem of the filioque. I don't know how many of you here are familiar with the filioque. Quite a few. And so the thing is whether uh, the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son, um, as is maintained in the Catholic Church, or directly from the Father. And this remains to this day a great source of um, contention in orthodoxy. So these reunions failed. What they did uh, uh, achieve though is for good and for bad uh, a strong association of certain eth ethnic groups and religion. So the Poles on the whole became deeply associated with Roman Catholicism, Latin Rite, Belarus was what is now Belarus was half in Russia, half in uh, Poland, and it all became very. Uh, um, sometimes it was majorly Greek Rite, sometimes it was majorly Orthodox, sometimes it was majorly Catholic, and it shifted like a tide in and out, in and out, constantly changing. Which is why Belarus today has uh, a very peculiar relationship, not only religiously. Uh, although it must be said, unlike mainland Russia, it is one of the most tolerant areas in terms of friendship between Catholics, Orthodox, and even other non-Christian faiths. There were, of course, some uh, incredibly important saints at this time. Some of them were like St. Alexander Nevsky, who was a warrior saint. He is seen as the defender of Orthodox Christianity against the Catholic uh, Teutonic Knights. <clears throat> but what you don't hear very much is that he achieved that largely because of Mongol, Tatar, <coughs> sorry, Islamic support. 
because it was the Mongol forces which provi provided him with the extra manpower that he needed to defeat the Catholic West. Then there were saints like <coughs> Andrei Rublev. You've probably all seen that Tarkovsky film with the wonderful icons and images by Andrei Rublev in the, uh, around about the 15th century-ish. Uh, that you can see in Vladimir, in the Tetryakov Gallery, in the Russian Museum, and uh, uh, various other places in Moscow too. Wonderfully, uh, spiritually evocative <coughs> icons. <coughs> There's also, <coughs> sorry, St. Sergios of Radonezh and St. Seraphim of Sarov uh, later, and uh, another uh, Neil Sorsky, there were those saints who very much um, valued uh, using uh, magnificently uh, glamorous churches as with gold and silver and other uh, elements to bring people to God and then there were other saints who felt that was not the way to go, you needed a more ascetic almost um, a Protestant approach to ecclesiastical architecture. Later, although um, in, in the, uh, the, uh, there were always uh, saints, sometimes they would go back in, uh, to the original Greek texts, sometimes they would, um, thank you, sometimes um, they would be influenced by uh, Catholic theology, even occasionally by Oriental f uh, philosophy. But one person who's worth mentioning, and now we're not being chronological, but I feel it's appropriate in some respects to bring him up here, is St. John of Kronstadt in the early 20th century, late 19th century, who was a great favorite of Tsar Alexander III and attended him in his um, final illnesses. Well, uh, the original seat of orthodoxy in ancient Rus was Kiev. But it moved to Moscow because that is where, uh, in the Middle Ages, the center of power uh, politically and economically moved. Of course, Moscow was in that great crossroads with rivers heading towards Asia and also um, pointing towards Novgorod and Pskov, Smolensk and uh, Europe proper. And more and more, particularly in the course of the uh, 19th, uh, of the um, 16th century, as also happened in Europe, the uh, role of the Russian state, the emperor and the church uh, became more and more forged together, less a symphony than frequently a concophony. In the time of Ivan the Terrible, um, it became so bad that although he loathed Protestantism, loathed Catholicism, he nonetheless was a devout Orthodox believer. That said, 
he, in a rage, or as we all know, he on one, uh, on one occasion uh, murdered his own son and also had uh, on another the Metropolitan of Moscow because Moscow did not have a Patriarch in those days. It was still the Patriarch of Constantinople. He had him uh, murdered. In 1589 is a pivotal year because that is the year in which Constantinople granted autonomy to the, uh, Moscow, uh, creating a new Patriarch of Russia. Why did that happen? Quite simply, since 1453, the Constantinople had fallen to the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, and Mehmet the Conqueror. And although he allowed the Patriarchate to continue, and I will remind you of the famous remark that the then Patriarch made when the conquest happened, he said, better the turban of the Pope, of the Sultan, than the tiara of the Pope. There was that level of anti uh, uh, papal uh, stances in Constantinople. But of course the reason why <coughs> uh, Mehmet the Conqueror did not see himself as a conqueror because the Orthodox Byzantine emperors for 150 years had always married a princess to the Sultan. She kept her Orthodox religion, her children did not, but that meant they were all cousins. So when uh, Mehmet the Conqueror, as we call him, conquered Istanbul, which is basically the Turkish for Constantinople, he saw himself as taking over his rightful throne. Anyway, thereafter, um, Russia became more or less autonomous from Constantinople, but the Patriarchate continued there, and by the late 16th century, it was in desperate need of cash. <clears throat> and so what did it do? It came to an arrangement with um, the, the Tsar, the Emperor, that if Russia would give a lot of money to them in Constantinople, they would acquiesce in the creation of um, a new patriarch. And then, of course, what you had, you had the case that the largest population of Orthodox people in the world were no longer in uh, what had been the Byzantine Empire, they were in Russia. And so the sovereign of Russia was the greatest ruler of Byzantine Christianity, and his patriarch um, was the most important figure. Uh, during the course of the 17th century, the Russian church under Patriarch Nikon, well, I might, let me backtrack a little. Um, what, uh, the, an earlier patriarch uh, was in fact a Romanov during the early 17th century. And uh, he had long been imprisoned in northern Russia during the times of troubles. But when he was released, he founded with his, through his son, before he obviously he'd had before he became a monk, a uh, because he'd been obliged to become a monk during the times of troubles, um, he established the Romanov dynasty 
which uh, continued until, as we know, the horrors of um, the Russian Revolution. And uh, about a, a few decades later, with the arrival of, uh, of Patriarch Tichin, uh, um, uh, Nikon, you had what uh, really has to be called Russia's own Reformation, which led to a breakaway church within orthodoxy, the Old Believers. Now the Old Believers in the last few years have been uh, re-accepted into communion with the church, uh, Russian church uh, in Moscow. But uh, for many years, especially during the time of Peter the Great, they were slaughtered, um, mainly because they were a, a threat politically to Peter's rule. And as I'm sure everyone knows here, although Peter did uh, establish the first Russian Orthodox Church in London, connected to the embassy when he was here, uh, he was not a particularly devout Orthodox believer. And he saw his role more like that of Henry VIII, or Gust King Gustav Vasa of Sweden, as making himself the head of the church, often coming into conflict with the patriarchs, which meant that he thought when the patriarch died in the early 18th century, he abolished it. And henceforth until 1917, there were metropolitans in Moscow, but no longer any uh, patriarchs because he saw himself as the head and the protector of the church, but a church which in the 18th century, with certain exceptions, tended to be much more like a Northern European church. And more and more the monarchs uh, in the 18th century confiscated ecclesiastical land, which reached a peak under Catherine the Great who was uh, largely abhorred by the um, orthodox prelates because of her independence and um, she was obviously very much a figure of the enlightenment uh, com communicating with people in uh, uh, famous people in uh, Paris and so on uh, with enlightenment values which did not go to, uh, down well in 18th century um, Orthodox Russia. During th all this period, meanwhile, since very much the time of Ivan the Terrible, there was another side to the church and relations with people, and that is <clears throat> the church constantly sent people eastwards and into the Caucasus, into Central Asia. And so moving in all these um, directions, they reached as far as Japan and Alaska. Even today, there is a very active Russian Orthodox community in Alaska. And I would suggest any of you interested in Russian literature to read um, Nikolai Leskov, who on occasions fell foul of the church for some of his beliefs, but he wrote a lot about missionaries going eastwards and um, 
converting uh, local people to orthodoxy and also to a certain degree respecting um, some shamanistic and Buddhist uh, religious uh, methods, if you will. Of course, one aspect of it, as we can see under with Peter the Great, more and more the uh, state got the upper hand and a synod became the primary uh, means of control of how the Orthodox Church functioned. But the synod, obviously, the members of the synod were appoint, appointed by the um, head of state. Now, during the 18th century, partly because of Peter the Great's approach, partly because of Catherine the Great's uh, approach to the West, she even, when the Jesuits were forbidden everywhere in Europe, uh, they were invited to Russia, where they became the only country the Jesuits were established in uh, towards in, in the last few decades of um, her reign. And in Kiev, the language which is most important in the great school of theology there, the greatest, because there weren't many schools of theology, but Kiev was the most important, was Latin. However, during the early course of the 19th century, there was a Slavicization of theology and teaching which more and more tried to eliminate the um, Latin in theology and in the way people were taught. And then, of course, as the 19th century uh, carried on with uh, St. Tikhon, who was metropolitan then of um, Moscow, there was a huge revival of um, Slavicism in all that linking uh, the orthodoxy much more closely to uh, uh, Russia as being Holy Mother Russia with this great ethnic Slavic component. <clears throat> now I have to say if the, uh, the patriarchs and then the metropolitans had a lot of issues with the government they and sometimes were killed they also could have a lot of it, uh, issues with um, the wider uh, mass of Russian population. And so when there was a great uh, epidemic of plague in, um, I think, the 1780s, the then Metropolitan of Tikhon instituted all sorts of regulations for hygiene and preventing people on certain occasions from going to communion or going into a church, much like happened in recent times with COVID in Russia, in the Russian church. Um, he was murdered, not by the government, but by the people who felt he was keeping them from Holy Communion. During the course of the 19th century, especially the second half of the 19th century, despite people like St. John of Kronstadt and many others, and these great missionary saints who went out proselytizing, Russia, unfortunately, and this is, forgive me if I'm giving you my own personal views, 
But I think the, my own self, the two greatest catastrophes uh, to strike the world ha uh, has been the, firstly the French Revolution and secondly the Russian Revolution. I don't know if anybody here would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know they wouldn't disagree. <laughs> and so it, it, it infiltrated. I, I think people are very critical of Tsar Nicholas I for being tough on the uh, Decemberists. They were, Decemberists were people who introduced uh, terrorism. They introduced basically Jacobin values into Russia during the 1820s and 30s. And uh, the common uh, statement in uh, modern Russia, or at least Soviet Russia, and thereafter was, oh, he was a horrible czar, and um, he was brutal towards these people. Well, my personal view is he wasn't tough enough with them because he allowed them to live. They fasted in Siberia, and then when they came back, even 40 years later, their views and values spread like a, a leprosy through um, the body politic, even into um, the highest levels of the nobility in Russia. And so many people within uh, so-called elite circles abandoned privately Christian belief and practice, uh, adopting these horrific aspects of um, a, a, a godless world. Well, we all know what happened then, the great horrors of uh, the revolution. Um, and uh, so when the revolution uh, broke out, well, to begin with the February revolution, one of the first things that happened, and so a lot of people in the church were happy, was the re-establishment of uh, a patriarch in Moscow. And that was Patriarch Tikhon who later also became a saint, and in many ways a martyr, um, uh, a few years later. But very uh, rapidly, people saw that uh, churches were invaded, much like uh, in England people see Pussy Riot. Um, this, everyone know who I mean by Pussy Riot? Uh, as this wonderful, sweet uh, girls who were just uh, objecting to tyranny. But in actual fact, a lot of what they did had echoes back to blasphemy and the destruction of churches and thousands and thousands of churchmen later in uh, the monastery, the Solovetsky monastery, and not just a playful little romp as would have happened if it took place in King's College Chapel or St. Paul's Cathedral. Also, a lot of the priests in uh, the church after the revolution had socialist tendencies. Even, dare one say, Grandpa Stalin, if I may use that absurd term, um, he had been a seminarian in an orthodox monastery. So uh, some of the worst enemies of the church in orthodoxy, Christianity, and even simple humanity, were former priests who were socialists and uh, became atheists. Now, you had other movements. You had the Obnoblensky movement, a reform movement. You had uh, 
a lot of people leaving Russia, establishing themselves in uh, what would be today um, uh, uh, Croatia, and some going to Serbia, many going to Paris, uh, many going to uh, New York, where uh, a, new, uh, a, a much more invigorated form of Russian orthodoxy uh, was established and carried on by people who managed to get out with all their rich historical, cultural and other backgrounds which en enabled it to thrive in this new uh, soil. But for those left back in Russia, it was catastrophic. You had an immense uh, repression. You had all the new martyrs. And now one of the things, whatever one may object to uh, of uh, Metropolitan Tikhon of Pskov, he has created specifically a, uh, an immense uh, cathedral and monument in Moscow to the memory of the martyrs of Bolshevism. What is slightly problematical though, there is, as time goes on, more of an attempt to say this, the Russian Revolution was not caused by Russians, but by outside forces, much as we hear now emanating from Moscow. So uh, back then, many people would, uh, so uh, increasing there is an approach by some prelates as well as ordinary people to say Russians did not want the revolution, it was the Jews or foreigners or Westerners who wanted it. Patriarch Tikhin um, obviously died under these circumstances and it left within Russia a rump church and even that rump church was uh, divided and a new uh, um, what we now call Sergianism developed with the then Metropolitan Sergius because he signed a declaration submitting to the Soviet authorities. And so effectively a new church abroad came into being which rejected this um, accommodation. I'll rush through the 1930s when thousands of priests and ecclesiastics were murdered and go to world, uh, the Second World War when Stalin, who for all his, the, um, his foibles was not stupid, decided that one way to invigorate the Russian body politic to uh, get involved in the war effort was to re-establish uh, the role of a patriarch and also to um, open churches. And that indeed proved an enormous boon to the Russian war effort against the Nazis. Having said that, there were a lot of issues whereby many uh, Orthodox priests also, especially in Ukraine and territories occupied by the Germans, then were relieved to have the Germans come in because they gave the Orthodox a freedom, not out of religious conviction, because they too wanted to use that orthodox fervor in, uh, against the Soviet authorities. And we're seeing that arising now again in Ukraine today with this fight between those orthodox who see their ancestors in the 1940s fighting against the Soviet authorities, albeit as allies of the Nazis, and those who think 
um, the Soviets were freeing them from the Nazis. And so you have this greatly tangled web um, which leads uh, Moscow, for example, now to say that Ukraine is a Nazi country, even though it's run by a Jew, which is obviously um, absurd. Another aspect of this uh, Russian, uh, this political, governmental uh, intertwining with orthodoxy was that anyone, for a certain period, in just after uh, the war, the only monastery which had never been wrecked, destroyed, and still functioned was that in Pskov. That happened because for most of the interwar period, it belonged to Estonia. It's now back in Russia. And it was then later used as a, 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 a prison camp, albeit uh, for priests and uh, monks and nuns who uh, didn't like the Soviet system. But there were always people, especially the, uh, in the, uh, the patriarchs thereafter, especially the higher clergy, who were members of the KGB because they could not achieve any office of significance if they were not in the KGB. Now, how much they adhered to the KGB's values is another matter. After all, everyone who lived in Renaissance Italy more or less was Catholic. It didn't mean they actually believed it or practiced it. Well, with the fall of the Soviet um, Union, obviously a window of freedom opened for the church. And there has been, up to this present day, I know a lot of people involved, massive rebuilding uh, of churches and immense uh, restoration, which is phenomenal. Patriarch Alexei II, who was the uh, penultimate patriarch, he, during, when wars broke out in Chechnya and in Moldova during uh, the 90s, he famously condemned the military activity. So even though he had been in the KGB, after the fall of him, he condemned it. As we know now, the current patriarch, Kirill, takes a different approach. The church uh, more and more in the, uh, got money. The government, Yeltsin, gave a lot of money. Also money for uh, taxes collected from cigarettes went to the church. And the church became, along with the FSB, uh, one of the great um, thriving institutions in uh, post-Soviet Russia. But uh, I think a, a little anecdote that I heard when I was in... St. Petersburg expresses uh, a bit the relationship. There's a wonderful Baroque church in St. Petersburg called the St. Nicholas Cathedral. And a lot of uh, important oligarchs and uh, intelligence people, FSB, um, which took over from the KGB, SVR, GRU, where they attend. And the joke is, why do the priests at the St. Nicholas Cathedral have three times the holidays of the, all the other priests in St. Petersburg? And the answer is because of the confessions they have to hear from their parishioners. <laughs> well, today, as we know, the FSB 
is immensely important in Russia. Uh, there's little doubt that its uh, tentacles have uh, not gone away in the church or indeed uh, anywhere else. But it, it, the tensions uh, involving the church are, of course, not only those sort of tensions, there's also tensions with local people. Because, for example, it happens in St. Petersburg, a beloved museum was returned to the church, but it no longer was a museum, so people couldn't use it as they did before. And uh, I know there was also a park, uh, I think in St. Petersburg and in a uh, park in Moscow, which, uh, on which instead of carrying on being used as a park for recreation, became the location for a new large cathedral. And so local people felt they were losing their local amenities by that. But there was very little they felt um, they can do. So uh, to a certain degree, in the last 10 years, relations have deteriorated. Um, I would say 20 years ago was the heyday when the churches were full of young people, uh, they were thriving. Whereas now, once again, a lot of young people are leaving because it's uh, not many young people uh, share the views of the Russian Kremlin. And so it tends to be more older people and church authorities who are the more supportive. And that creates tensions. <clears throat> There's also uh, f foreign tension, and I don't mean just tension with us and in the West, but with, uh, within orthodoxy with Constantinople. Because we, and as we've seen in what I said earlier, there is a tension with Constantinople that goes back right to the beginning. Because in some respects, Constantinople sees itself as the primal church, even though there are only uh, uh, a few uh, hundred thousand uh, Orthodox Christian in Turkey. Uh, and Russian has a far larger um, number. And when the Orthodox Patriarch granted Tomos, that is autonomy, to certain elements in the Ukrainian church, that was perceived by uh, those in Moscow as non-uncanonical, and uh, there were mutual excommunications um, issued. Well, to sum up here, let me just say, uh, you've heard a lot today about the history, about the problems, uh, but what I haven't been able to focus on, which you can really only um, experience by going to an Orthodox liturgy or visiting an Orthodox monastery or convent, is the great um, richness within the Orthodox Church. Uh, spiritual Christianity. And I would just like to conclude uh, of a remark that I heard from an archbishop in Rome who said uh, to me that um, orthodoxy and Latin Catholicism are two lungs of Holy Mother Church. And I thought that is a good way to look at it. Thank you very much.